there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thank you so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Danny Higginbotham, the former Sky Sports analyst and player in England who's now in the U.S. doing studio work for NBC Sports Premier League coverage, the local broadcasts for the Philadelphia Union, and he's also calling this weekend's Community Shield for ESPN. We've had some great guests lately, including Mark McKenzie, Michael Parkhurst, and Hope Solo. So check those out. Now, here's my interview with Danny Higginbotham. Our guest now is Danny Higginbotham. He was a Premier League defender whose 17-year pro career included time at Stoke City, Southampton, Derby County, Sunderland, and Manchester United. He then started a media career with TV work at Sky Sports. And for the last year, he's moved with his American wife and their family to the U.S., where he's doing Premier League studio work for NBC Sports and is the local TV analyst for the Philadelphia Union. He also happens to listen to our show, which I'm tickled by. Danny, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. No, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Like you've said, you know, obviously your podcasts and what have you, there's been some been some interesting ones. So they've they've been good listening and, you know, long may that continue. Thank you. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh, it's great to have you as part of the U.S.-based soccer media, having followed you before you came over here. Uh, what led to you moving over to the United States? I think it was it was always going to be... You know the the plan to to move over to America. You know, obviously with with having family over here and what have you, and it probably came up a little bit sooner than expected with the opportunity with with Philadelphia Union. And I just thought that when does an opportunity come along like that? You know, it, it's it's not something that that happens often. So I just thought it was it was a great opportunity, not not just for obviously the working side of things, but but the family side of things as well. So it was something that thought about for a little while, but you know once. Once I actually visited uh, Philadelphia Union and spoke to everybody there, I was amazed by how professional the setup was both on and off the pitch. And it was something that, that I was really excited about. So, you know, it ended up being a no-brainer for me. And, you know, here we are. It took a little bit longer with, with obviously everything that's been going on with the pandemic. But I've, I've been delighted to get started with everything and enjoying every single minute of it. Yeah, I was reading in a really good story on you by Jonathan Tannenwald mm. in the Philadelphia Inquirer a few months ago. Um you met your American wife on a trip over here? Yeah, I was I was on holiday, and you know it was a situation at, at the time where obviously I was still playing football um, in England, and you know I'd, I'd thought about moving potentially over at the time to continue my football career, but it, it wasn't right at the forefront of of my mind, and you know so obviously my wife, you know, she came and visited a few times, and and it went from there really, and it was twelve years. Um, in England, and I think if anything, she's she's probably found it a little bit more difficult to leave to leave England than than I have because obviously you know you you get you get to a point, especially as as a mother and things like that. You know you you want to make sure everything's all right for your children. I think that's first and foremost, and I think as as a father as well, but as a, as a mother, I think you're always thinking about you know is it the right thing to do for the children, everything, and and what we've seen so far, you know they're they're loving they're loving life over here, you know, so it's great, and like I say, long may that continue. What have you learned so far about the the soccer culture in the United States, including? The media culture around mm. soccer here. I think the growth is is huge. I think obviously what's what's happened recently with the U.S. men's national team is is there for everybody to see. I think the fact that you're getting young players coming through now in in MLS that are actually moving on to Europe. You know the club that that I'm that I'm delighted to be working for, Philadelphia Union. You only have to look at Brendan Aronson and Mark McKenzie. What they're doing now, the moves that they've made, the transitions that they've made, and what I love about about the sport over here is that when you're in England, football is it's it's the be all and end all. It's it's the biggest sport. There's no doubt about it. And you know you can see that football is growing all the time in England, but it it's it has been the main sport for so long. And when you come over here, football isn't the main sport. You've got obviously the American football. You've got the baseball. You've got the basketball. You've got the hockey, etc. etc. And one of the things that I'm really enjoying is that it's a concerted effort from everybody involved to, to grow the sport over here. So even when I'm doing MLS games, I'll speak to the other team's commentators or co-commentators and everybody helps each other. It, it's a common goal 
to understand that in order for the league to grow, yes, it's unbelievably important what's happening on the pitch, the standard going up, the plays that are being produced. But I also think the output that every team is able to give as well, I think is vital because what you're trying to do, there is a number of, of people that, that love the sport, but there's also people that are new to it as well. And you want to make sure that if you've got somebody tuning in for the first time to watch a game that you're covering, that it's not the last time that they tune in, that they learn something from what you're doing. So that's been that's been something that I find really exciting. I think it's an adventure for everybody to, to help the sport grow. And from what I've seen, even in the short time that I've been here, everybody's going in the same direction. And, you know, the growth of the game is, is, is consistently going up, which is great to see. It really is interesting. I, I feel like... I, the growth compared to when I started covering it in 96 to now yeah. is night and day. And, and yet it's st- soccer still small enough in the U S in, in the media sphere that everyone kind of knows each other. So th- there's, yeah, uh, that aspect isn't necessarily a bad thing, but you're right. People seem to be kind of working together uh, in, in a way to try and take the sport to a new place. I want to get back in a little bit to more stuff about the U.S., but I also want to ask you about the Premier League because mm. it seems crazy, but Premier League starts on August 13th, and you've been connected to it with NBC Sports. Enjoy the studio studio work you've done. It's a great team they've got mm. there uh, that gets together in Connecticut. What has your experience been like doing studio work with NBC Sports? <sighs> I can't speak highly. I can't speak highly enough of everybody involved. You know, from from Rebecca, from the two Robbies, with Tim, they they've welcomed me with with open arms. And the one thing that I would say is that the first time, the first show that I did was a Monday, and I went down on the Saturday, the Saturday, and I watched the shows from behind the scenes, the Saturday and the Sunday, and. One of the things that sometimes you don't realise or don't appreciate is just how much work goes into it. And one of the things that stood out for me was the amount of games that they were covering on those two days. But it never felt rushed when I was watching it. They always had time to go through certain things. And that that doesn't happen by accident. You know, there's a build-up to the shows. Everybody knows what they want to talk about during the shows. Don't get me wrong, things can happen during games, especially as we've seen the last season, things that can happen off the pitch as well. And you have to react to that. Right. And, you know, the, the the people that are in front of the camera deserve an unbelievable amount of credit, but the people behind the camera as well. You know, it, it's it's a huge effort from the whole of the team, everybody that's involved. And, and like I say, I say, I was I was made to feel unbelievably welcome. And it's a really good team. Everybody gets on well. And when you get to the end of the day, it's a long day, but then you're looking at it and you're thinking to yourself, wow, we've covered so much because... Everything that goes on on the pitch, and like I've just said, the amount of stuff that went on off the pitch as well. But we were able to cover it because we had people behind the scenes that were that were keeping their finger on on the pulse and keeping us informed of it. So it was a real concerted effort from everybody. And you know, just reiterate again, it's been an absolute pleasure to be involved in the team. I, I did feel good for you guys a little bit though when they announced the schedule for all the games and the Premier League is going back this season mm. to five games kicking off at 10 a.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. in England because there were so many game windows last year that the amount of work hours that you all were doing <laughs> must have been through the roof. It, it was it was interesting for me because obviously I've not, I've not witnessed a normal season here. So yeah. to be thrown into it, it's... One of the things that helps is because, as you've quite rightly said, it's it's a long day, but the fact that everybody gets on so well, you know, and, and we'll have a laugh when, when the camera's off and things like that, we know that you can have a laugh at certain times when the camera's on as well. So ever since I've, ever since I've come into to the media side of things, I find it difficult to call it a job. It, mm-hmm. It's, you know, all right, people say, yeah, it is a job and, and what have you, but I just don't look at it like that because... I'm doing something that I love to do. I'm do I'm I'm talking about something that I love to talk about as well and and I'm learning all the time as well because as a player you probably you probably only look at the game one way which is as long as I'm playing as long as when the team sheet goes up and I'm playing I'm happy. But then when you cross over to the other side and you become part of the media side of things it's important to try and build relationships with managers and then you understand what they've got to do. 
and you get you get a, a better understanding a better appreciation and i think it enables you to see the game from a different viewpoint as well and i think it's on, it's only good the more experience that you can have from speaking to people that are involved in the game that aren't necessarily on the pitch on a saturday or tuesday or wednesday whenever the game may be because it gives you it gives you a whole different area where you can develop and hopefully bring that to the audience as well yeah it is sort of hard to characterize this as a job sometimes i always Very. try to remind myself if i'm ever going through a, a, a really tough stretch or which is rare like i'm not shoveling coal for a living yeah. here you know we're doing stuff in in soccer which is an absolute blast mm. um just looking at the Premier League as a whole heading into this season, mm. in your opinion, what are some of the biggest storylines heading into this season? I think obviously you look at the situation at Manchester City um, with Jack Grealish and, and more recently Harry Kane. It's going to be interesting to see how all that unfolds. I think that in the Premier League, you're, what we've seen um, probably this summer is that all the teams are trying to play catch up to Manchester City. How they went about things last season, you know, the playing with the false number nine, the, the way they conserved the energy, the way that they were able to to change the team um, week after week. The fact that they didn't have a dominant goal scorer, I think there was only play, two players that got double figures, but they had so many different match winners. And now the potential to add to that with Jack Grealish and with Harry Kane as well is is absolutely incredible. And I think you look at the transfer business that other teams have done, in particular probably Manchester United, with mm -hmm. bringing in Varane, which I think is an outstanding sign in the price that they've gotten for a player that you know they've, they've identified in an area of a pitch that they need, they need to bring in. Sancho is something that's been going on for, for a long time. Um, Liverpool haven't really done any business as of yet, but Van Dijk coming back to full fitness... Gomez coming back to full fitness, that can only be a good thing. You look at Chelsea, you've got to say that they're going to be strong this season with two with two called the way that, that he went about things, culminating in, in winning the Champions League final. So so they're great. Leicester City, I love Leicester City the way that they play. They they I was looking at it earlier on, and they sell one of their top players near enough every year. You know, all right, drink water went to Chelsea, didn't work for him, but at the time when he left, he was a key player. You've got Kante who's left. You've got Maguire who's left. You've got Chilwell who's left. You've got Mares that's left. Mm. But they managed to replace those players. And, you know, when you look at the Leicester City team, the, there are players that are on Manchester City's bench that probably cost more than what your top player at, at Leicester cost. So for me, it's it's unbelievable. You've got the circumstances at Tottenham. What's going to happen with them? With Harry Kane, is he going to stay? Is he going to go? A new manager there. Um, Liverpool, you know, how are they going to react after last season? They they struggled with with injuries and you know loss of form from certain players. So it's it's going to be a really interesting season again. But I think in order wherever you are in the Premier League, whether you're at the the top echelon or whether you're down at the bottom, you have to sign players to stand still. You know, I've been part of clubs that. Not, not that we're challenging at the top, but where we didn't sign players because we'd finished 11 4 12, and it's like, oh, okay, it's going to be okay. And we ended up being in relegation battles because you do have to sign players in order just to stand still. Mm -hmm. So then all of a sudden, when you hear that Manchester City want Jack Grealish, want Harry Kane, then the teams that are below them that are already playing catch up, you know, their transfer window then sort of gets thrown out of the window because in Grealish and Harry Kane, you've got, you've got two of the best players in Europe at the moment. Yeah. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday, coming out first thing Thursday. I don't know if any moves are going to be announced between yeah. now and then, but like Harry Kane, Jack Grealish, do you think they will be Manchester City players this season? I think Jack Grealish is the more likelier of the two. I think... You know, Aston Villa, I love Dean Smith, the manager, what he's done at the club. I know Dean Smith as well and what a guy he is. Um, you know, the first season when they were in the Premier League, it was they wanted quantity over quality because they believed that their squad needed to be stronger. Whereas last season, it was more quality over quantity and it showed with, with how they did in the league. And Jack Grealish and Aston Villa, lifelong fan, and you give him credit for that. But I think if he was to leave Aston Villa... I don't think there'll be that there would be too many supporters for Aston Villa, if anything, if any that would turn against him because of what he's done at the club. You know, he could have left when they got relegated. He didn't. He was part of the process of them getting promoted. Was made captain. So that's an interesting one. 
I can see that happening more so than the one with Harry Kane. The the situation that Harry Kane's finding himself in now, I think it's two days now where he's not gone for training. And, you know, the talk of having a gentleman's agreement with with Daniel Levy, I, I just don't know how much weight that carries. I really don't. And the, you know, he he's what? He's got three years left. I think he signed a six-year contract in 2018, I think it was. So he doesn't really hold that many cards because what's he going to do is he how, how does he try and force a move we know that Harry Kane is the top goal scorer one of the top goal scorers in, in European and, and world football he he will have he will have aspirations of becoming the Premier League top all all time top goal scorer mm-hmm. he's 94 goals I think behind Alan Shearer something along those lines and when the season starts, when the transfer window shuts, if he's still at Tottenham, he's going to be playing in that Tottenham team. There's, there's no doubt about it. Now, if you flip it on the other side and you say, OK, well, Manchester City come in with 120, 130 million for Harry Kane and Tottenham accept it. The problem that, that, that you then have is that with a club like Tottenham, they will have, they, they will have a, I would imagine, a wage limit as in terms of how much they're going to give to, to players. I think that's something that's been noted quite a lot over, over the years. They don't go astronomical in football terms as in terms of paying wages. So it's okay saying, well, if we get £120 million for Harry Kane, for example, and then we see a top-class centre forward that's going to cost £85-90 million, pounds, then you're going to have to give that top-class centre forward £85-90 million pound wages. Now, what happens then to the stru- what happens then to the wage structure at the club? Because you know what's going to happen. There's going to be other players. I know Son's just signed a new contract, but you're going to have you're going to have some of the other top class players going and knocking on the door mm-hmm. and saying, "Well, hang on, you just brought this player in, so I want to be giving this to to move in line." So it's okay. Everybody's saying, "Well, you're going to get 120 million for him." First of all, Harry Clay, Harry Kane, in my opinion, the way he is with Tottenham, is to a certain extent irreplaceable. And if you look at their goal scoring chart last season, it was Harry Kane and it was Son. And there was very few others that, that were getting the goals for them. And it was Harry Kane and Son that were getting the assists. And more often than not, they were getting the assists for each other. So if Harry Kane goes, not only have you lost one of the best centre forwards in world football, it's also going to affect Son as well. There's no doubt about it. So I don't think it's as straightforward as, well, I had a gentleman's agreement and I should be able to move. Now, first of all, Nobody knows how much Manchester City have bid. Nobody knows how much Tottenham won. And when Harry Kane signed this this long contract, this six-year contract, he was a top-class player then. And what probably surprises me a little bit is that he didn't have something, a clause written in the contract that he may have had a release a release clause in there. So right. if, you, if you were to ask me now where I think Harry Kane will start the season, I think it will be at Tottenham. Interesting. And do you think if that happens, he would have the right attitude he's always been known for having a good attitude yeah i don't i don't i don't think it's, I, i've i've been at clubs before where players have have tried to get a move because they want to further the career and no nobody can argue with that you know as a player you want to play at the highest level you want to you want to win trophies you know you you want to have that success but if he doesn't get this move i think one of the other things that you have to factor in as well with the pandemic that's occurred Teams are going out and they're still spending decent money. But I think Daniel Levy will be looking at it and thinking, right, he's got three years left on his contract. He's, I think, 28 now. If if a club is willing to spend 100, 110 million on him this year, I can guarantee you, even though he has one year less on his contract next year, they'll still be in the position to spend that money again. And there'll probably be more suitors or more competitors. So from Daniel Levy's side of things, from a business perspective... Okay, he'll be a year further down the line. He still have two years left on his contract. I don't see the transfer fee being a lot less next season than what it will be this season because of everything that's gone on in the world. So that will probably be a situation where Daniel Levy will look at it and think, we're not really going to lose that much money. Harry Kane is a professional player. Let's not forget, you know, he's captain of he's captain of England as well. And there's no way the captain of England, if he remains at Tottenham, isn't going to be playing week in, week out. And then he's got to make sure that he's still at the top of his game because there are young players, there are other players that are coming through all the time. So therefore, next season, if he's not been to the to the top of his powers, the peak of his powers, Manchester City could look somewhere else. Or they could be be prepared to wait for another year. So I think I think there's a lot to happen for him to actually move this summer. And like I say, I would lean more 
more so on him not moving this summer than actually moving. Interesting. That all makes sense to me. Um, the summer of soccer continues on Paramount+. Plus. Stream over 2,000 soccer matches a year from around the world. That's all the heart-pounding drama from CBS Sports, including UEFA Champions League, Europa League, Italy's Serie A, Argentina's Primera División, the Brasileirao, the NWSL, the Asian Football Confederation, and the CONCACAF qualifiers, featuring the stars from the U.S. and Mexican men's national teams. Plus, much more. It's the best of the beautiful game, with all the beautiful names, like Messi, Mbappe, Ronaldo, Rapino, and Pulisic. Be part of the excitement as champions are crowned and history is made. The world's game lives here on Paramount+. Plus. Visit ParamountPlus.com to start your free trial and stream every match live. If you look at the Premier League, mm. what are the Premier League teams that, in your mind, actually have a realistic shot at winning the title this season? Oh, I just wonder whether this is re- worth revisiting when the transfer <laughs> window is short. So I might be able to give you a better understanding then. Um, at the moment... I think Manchester City sh- showed they, they, they won the, the Premier League, I think it was by 12 points. Um, Manchester United, I think with the signings that, that they've made, are going to be challenging. I think Chelsea, I think they're going to challenge because I think we, soon, we, we saw with, with Tuchel what he was able to do with, with the team. Um, Liverpool... We know what they're capable capable of. It's just all about Van Dijk. Everyone's expecting Van Dijk to come back fit and just be the Van Dijk of old. I can tell you from from similar injuries to to what he's just had to deal with. It takes time. It takes right. time to get back. I would love, I would love to see him come back that first game and be like, "Wow, it's like he's not been away." But it will take time. So it's how long it takes for Van Dijk to get back to his absolute best because we know that he's one of the best centre-backs in the world. So if that's the case and he does come back and and he's getting back to his old self sooner rather than later, then you've got to say that they've got to be involved in the conversation. Tottenham, I, I I I don't see it. Um, you yeah. know, challenging for top four. Yes, I don't see them challenging for the title. So I think if you were to ask me at the moment, I would probably say Manchester City, Liverpool, Manchester United and, and Chelsea as well. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot to dethrone Manchester City, that's for sure. Chelsea's an interesting one because obviously they won the Champions League. Um, had to scrape to get into the top four, which they eventually mm. did at the end of the season. And fairly credible reports recently saying that they are sort of pursuing Erling Haaland. And if that doesn't work, yeah. they're sort of pursuing their old player, Romelu Lukaku. Yes. Which Inter doesn't, you know, he doesn't appear to be a guy that Inter wants to sell. Um, Whatever comes out of that, and and neither Holland or Lukaku may end up being a serious candidate to move to Chelsea, do you think that suggests that Timo Werner does not have the full confidence of the Chelsea brain trust? I honestly don't, I personally don't think, and a lot of people may disagree, I don't see, I don't think Timo Werner is a, is an out-and-out centre-forward. I don't, you know, a, a lot of people talk about him when he played at, at, at Leipzig and the way that he played there, the way that he performed. Leipzig, a lot of the time, are more of a counter-attacking team, so you could benefit from using Timo Werner's pace. At yeah. Chelsea, Chelsea cannot be a counter-attacking team because 90, 95% of the games that they're going to play, they're going to dominate possession, so therefore they're not going to be able to play on the counter-attack unless you know they get that early goal, then the opposition has to come out. So I think Timo Werner, when I look at him, I think he's more of a, a wider play that can drift into the into the centre forward position yep. rather than starting in the centre forward position. Um, I really want him to do well because he's a player. If anything, he's trying too hard. So you see him on the pitch, and, it, and and it's not for a lack of effort. And you find yourself watching games where he gets into great opportunities. There was one particular game in the Premier League towards the end of the season where I think he had a maybe two goals disallowed and I think he eventually got I think he eventually got his goal but I was willing him to be able to do that because it's not for the lack of effort it's not for the, for the lack of trying and I think myself personally that he would work better off a centre forward than actually being the centre forward himself and we've we've seen 
with Chelsea at certain times last season, playing with a false number nine, which is something that Manchester City did really well, whether it be Havertz, whether it, whether it be Timo Werner. But I, I just think in, in Timo Werner's case, I think he's a better... He's a better player that ends up in the centre-forward position rather than starting in the centre-forward position. And I think you probably get more out of him that way because there's more space in the wider areas. We've seen the amount of times that he drifts over to the left. And that's where it becomes a real problem, a real handful for the opposition. And it's less congested. So he has more time and space on the ball there. So I hope it comes good for him because, like I say, I, I love looking at players that are trying absolutely everything. And the reason it isn't working isn't because of their lack of character or because of their lack of attention to detail or, or their lack of work rate. And, you know, hopefully it will turn around and work well for him. But I just, I just don't see him as the out-and-out centre-forward that maybe other people do. I really enjoyed watching him when he was at Leipzig. And for his sake, mm. hope that he's able to rediscover some of that with yeah. Chelsea, you know, because he's a terrific player. Uh, this is an American podcast. I'm going to ask you about Christian Pulisic. Uh, mm. You're talking about wide players at uh, at Chelsea. Overall, last season, Pulisic, not the most productive season, dealt with injuries, uh, but then played a role in some mm -hmm. of the bigger games of the season, scored in the Champions League semifinal game at Real Madrid to put Chelsea in front. Um, what do you think is a realistic expectation or hope for Christian Pulisic this season? I look at Christian Pulisic and I think, as you've quite rightly said, you know, I think as the season went on, it became more and more trusted. And I think that's a big thing for managers. It, it's, it's all about the trust. It's the trust aspect. Can you trust a player um, on the pitch to, to, to deliver the goods, whether that be defensively or whether that be attacking-wise? And I think with, with Pulisic, I, I love it when he's playing on the left-hand side and he drifts inside. He'll drift inside to that number 10 position. I think he's an intelligent player. And I think what you've got now, what's going to help, not just Pulisic, but I think other players within the squad as well, is that you've got, you've got big game players now coming into, coming into this, this Chelsea team that are going into their second year in the Premier League. And I think that's, that's an important development as well. And people can't forget that. And I think that's going to benefit Pulisic, not, not just because of simple facts. I know that it's not his second season in the Premier League, but other players around him that are going to be able to deliver for him that are going to be on the same wavelength as him as well. So I'm excited for Pulisic. I think the, the next season, I think it holds a lot for him because of the way that he ended the last season, I think what he's, what he's had to do and, and had to adjust to as well is that we talk about the Premier League being the best league in the world and, and I agree with that and it has some of the best players in the world as well. But it also has a physical element to it as well. Right. And I've seen top players come over and hit the ground running and I've seen top players come in where it's taken a year or two to actually get the understanding of the league because it is a physical league and I think what we saw towards the latter stages of last season was Pulisic starting to, to come to terms with the physical element of the game to find spaces where he wasn't going to find himself in a physical confrontation and I think he's a special talent obviously we know his importance to the to the US men's national team there's no question about that and I think the biggest thing is that as the season went on I think Thomas Tuchel started to trust him more and more as it went along, and that that's a huge factor. So I'm expecting I'm expecting a big season from him next season. There's no doubt about it because he's got the ability to be able to do that and shine. I think you're totally right about the physical stuff with with Pulisic as a big challenge, and I'm curious to see how he responds to all of the World Cup qualifying games he's going to have yeah. to play because that's three games yeah. basically every window from September to March and a lot of travel not travel. just from Europe to here but here to Honduras and El Salvador and, and yeah. it's going to be a real physical and mental challenge I think for him and, and for all of these yeah. US players you know um, yeah but um, I I want to ask about when you got to Sky Sports. Mm. You you worked with legends like Martin Tyler. Oh, yeah. Uh, how how did you get into the media in the first place? Once your your playing career was done, and then what was it like working with someone like Martin Tyler? So I'll I'll touch on Martin in, in a minute because he's he's an he's an absolute legend. Um, it actually occurred. So I we got to the FA Cup final with with Stoke in two thousand eleven, and I got injured. Um, just before the semi-final so I ended up missing the semi-final and the final and, and for me as growing up in England and things like that you know you, we used to play 
what you'd call Wembley knockout and things like that. And you always used to pretend you were playing at Wembley. So for me, I was, I was really, I, I was, I was devastated. You know, it was, it was a huge downtime in in my career. But what happened was because Stoke City were in the spotlight. Obviously, you know, I was a first team player then. Leading up to the semi final, leading up to the final. Um, there was a few obviously media requests and I did them and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought that it was something that I'd like to do in the future, but then I parked it and I continued with my, with my rehab, got back playing again and played for another maybe two years, two or three years. And then I got the opportunity to do media stuff. And as a footballer, nothing gets in the way. You know, you have, you have your day-to-day basis, but everything is all about that Saturday and being ready. But I found myself getting towards the end of my career where I'd be doing pre-season training and we would start at nine o'clock and maybe finish at three o'clock. I found myself then driving two or three hours to go and do a show and then getting back home and having three hours sleep and then going pre-season. I was like, hang on a second, something's changing here. And it just went from that. And then what I did, I went and played semi-professional for about seven or eight months because I didn't want to leave football completely until I knew that A, people were going to want me to do media work and B, I wanted to do it myself. So I had the best of both worlds. But then the media side of things started taking over football and that's when I decided to to retire. And then when I was in an NBC, um, I think it was December time, obviously I know Rebecca a little bit, but then we got talking and she just said to me, said, oh, because she was, she was working for a company in England at the time. She said, oh, I remember when I interviewed you before the FA Cup final. I was like, yeah, she went, when we'd done the interview, she spoke to her bosses and was just like, you know, keep your eye on him. And it's these little things that you don't realise, you don't appreciate or anything like that. And it just went from, from strength to strength. And then as of with Martin Tyler, he, he's, just, he's just one of the nicest guys you could ever wish to meet. I, I dealt with him a few times when I was playing, so I had a sort of connection then. But then when I went into the media side of things, I got hold of his phone number and I rang him up. And and I was doing a few games at the time. And I just said to him, I said, I'm doing a game tomorrow, whatever the game would be. Do you mind watching it? And then just giving me some feedback if I can give you a call on the Monday. And he was like, yep, Danny, sure, absolutely no problem. So he he rang me on the Monday after we'd done the game and he gave me you know, his, his critiques, where he can be better, where, where it was good and things like that. And I'm not kidding you, he watched probably for a solid six months, he watched every single game that I did on TV. And we what? would talk after it. This is, the things, this is the things that people don't realise. And it's important for me to say that Martin Tyler, he is, he's the king of commentary. When you talk about commentary in England, the first person that comes to your mind is Martin Tyler. Mm-hmm. But what people don't understand as well is that the help these people are prepared to give as well. I think they respect and appreciate the fact that that you want to improve and you want to go into the industry and they want to help you along the way. And then obviously me doing the Monday night games for him, which were, which were obviously broadcast in America as well, was great. And I used to learn from him all the time. And he would just always say, say to me, after every single game, there's another few air miles for you. And yeah. it's so true because you're learning all the time. But he, yeah, he's... He's been so helpful to me and if ever I needed a chat, if ever I was unsure about a situation or whether I thought I might have called something wrong or may have made a little bit of a mistake, he'd just get on the phone to me and just we would just talk about it and he'd give, he'd give his instances. Just silly little things like if I was doing games off tube where obviously you're, you're, you're behind a screen, not at the stadium. One of the first ones I did, he just said to me afterwards, he said, turn your FX, turn them right up as loud as you can because then you then get carried away with the game. Your emotions then start to come out. And those, those are things that I would never never necessarily know about. And it, it's, it's the little things that, that mean so much. And then I was trying to think, I, I was doing some work on MUTV as well, which is Manchester United's um, TV station. And I was working. Um, I was working with a gentleman at the time, and he. I can't. I can't now remember because it's quite a while ago. And I said to him, I said, "Do you mind if I if I ring up and, and get some advice off you?" So he's like, "Yep, yeah, no problem." So I rang him on the Monday, and I'm thinking to myself, "Right, okay, I've done studio work with him. He's going to tell me, you know, what he liked about what I said, what he didn't like about what I said, you know, the the grammar I'm using, everything like that." And he just said to me, 
very similar to, you know, these little nuggets that you get from people. He just turned around to me and went, you know, when you sit down, I was like, yeah. He went, make sure you've got your suit on, you've got your tie and you've got your shirt, get the bottom of your jacket and put it under your backside. <laughs> I was like, I was like, why? And he said, it makes you sit up. It makes right. you sit up and it stops you from slouching. Mm-hmm. And But those are things that I would never, ever know about unless you speak to people that have been in this and just been entwined in this for so many years. And yeah. it's the little things like that that you remember and you take them you take them everywhere with you. So now every time I'm doing a show, I'm like, right, where's my suit, where's my suit jacket? Right, make sure it's under my backside. And then all of a sudden you sat up without realizing it just becomes second nature. Um, yeah. It, they're just nuggets that you, you can't you 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 can't get that straight away unless you're speaking to someone who has the ultimate experience of doing these things and it's brilliant. Yeah, I love the great nuggets that you can pick up over time like that. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got uh, from an editor just starting out was ask questions you don't know the answer to because mm. too often in sports journalism it seems like we're trying to get an athlete or a coach to say something we want them to say, but you're not really learning. Nobody's learning anything out of that. So if you're a student of what's happening and you still don't know the answer to something, you're going to get a better answer if you ask a question that can lead to something like that. Um, But Martin Tyler's amazing. And that that's just an incredible story, by the yeah. way, for him to put that much time into listening to your work and providing advice. Every time I've contacted him over the years, he's had time for me. And that to me has always been incredible. I did a, a history, an oral history of the last day of the the Premier League season when Man City won it over Man United oh, and, the, and the famous well. Aguero call from, from <laughs> Martin Tyler. Well. So interviewing him about that felt like it was just really cool to be able to talk something you know that important in the history of, of the Premier League with the mm. guy who called it. Uh, but just a really nice man as well. Yeah. Um, I, for me, the the style contrasts of the U.S. and England when it comes to soccer broadcasting mm-hmm. are pretty interesting because sometimes I feel like we could have more tactical discussion on U.S. broadcasts and than we do. And my sense is that English broadcasters sometimes see kind of the fun that maybe Jamie Carragher and Michael Richards mm. are having on the CBS Champions League broadcasts, those studio shows, and, and yours and, and others, yeah. and, and think that maybe English broadcasts could stand to have a maybe a little more fun, uh, be a little more informal than they are. Where do you stand on all that? Um, I think there's room for both. I think that when, when obviously, before I moved over here, when, when I was in in England, you would you would watch, say, Super Sunday on Sky or the Monday Night Football, and some of the debates that I would listen to were absolutely brilliant, were just brilliant. I would just be sat there, and before I knew it, I'd be like, I've been watching this for the last 45 minutes, and it's it's unbelievable, but it's, it's like everything. It's, it's, it's just getting the right balance of it. It's getting the right balance, and that's obviously different characters. You know what different characters will, will bring to it, but the one, the one thing that I've been not not surprised by but the one thing that i found really interesting is the the tactical element of of the game over here people are people are so hungry for more of it so yeah. how i try and put it is that obviously you know baseball american football in particular really those two i've sat through you know those games um just sat down on on you know in in my front room watching it and I will sit down with my father-in-law, or I'll sit down with my brother-in-law, and at the start of the game compared to the end of the game, when the end of the game comes, I've learned something. And that's because they're breaking things down for me because they've actually they've actually watched the game for so long. And then you may watch an after-game show or a pre-game show, and I'm learning things from those people all the time as well. Mm-hmm. So how I look at it is that when I'm when I'm now doing shows over here, whether it be commentary, whether it be studio, it's important to understand that you are going to have a whole host of different people watching the game. So you're going, you're going to have people that know the game as well as I do. You're going to have people that are first-time viewers, first-time listeners. So you have to get the balance right. So as much as I love the tactical side of the game, I want to be able to show it, but I want to be able to show it and 
what I try and do is think, right, okay, if I'm watching a baseball game now and there's an analyst or I'm watching an American football game and there's an analyst now, I want to be able to understand what he's saying. So it's important from my side of things to know, yes, you know what, there's going to be a number of people who are watching this show that actually know the ins and outs of football. But there's also going to be people which are new to this sport. Now, what's very important for me is that I'm never talking down to anybody. Right. That's so important. I never want to be I never want to be seen to talking down to an audience. So it's then getting that balance right where you are. Yes, you're giving some education to people that know what the game's all about as well, but you're also giving education to people that may just be getting involved in the sport because in order for football to grow over here, it's a generational thing. So you want to make it so that there's a kid at the moment or there's a 16, 17-year-old who's just getting into football. He's really enjoying it, but as he's getting older and as he's then having children, is he going to be getting his children into football as well? So it's a generational thing and you want to be part of that process. You don't want to be doing something where someone just turns off and goes, I'm not watching that because I have no idea what he's on about. But you don't want to have it where it's like someone's watching and they're going... He's talking down to us. So it's just getting that balance right where where it appeals to everybody. And that, for me, is really, really important. I think it's really interesting that you've spent time watching broadcasts of other American sports. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're using that to get an idea of of certain things as well. The the Philadelphia sports fan has sort of a a certain reputation, I guess, uh, uh, around the United States. Have... Has that, is that, what do you think of that? What was your sense of what that reputation is? Because I, there's certain aspects. Yes, these are people who booed Santa Claus way back in the day, but like, <laughs> they're also just hardcore sports fans. What, mm-hmm. what have you seen so far? I feel like I'm at home. I, feel, I, I honestly feel like I'm at home. Like people, people ask me about the Philadelphia supporters, whether that be the Union, the Eagles, 76ers, the Phillies. It, 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 it doesn't. It feels, the flyers, it just, it feels like home to me. It really does, because obviously I'm I'm from the north of England. And one of the things, and, and for certain clubs I played for, and one of the first interviews that I did when I joined the Philadelphia Union, they said, you know, what is this comparable to as in terms of England? And I went, one of the clubs that I was at for seven or eight years in my career, Stoke City. Mm-hmm. Now, they have paying fans that will come to the club, and we've been booed off when we're winning one nil at half time we've been cheered off when we're losing one nil at half time and that's because it's it's a working class area mm-hmm. stoke is and what they want to do they want to come to the end of the week and they want to go to a game and look at a player and say he's given everything that he's got it's mm-hmm. as simple as that they will accept poor performances. They will accept bad performances. They will accept players not doing so well. But it's the manner in which that happens. And I think that's very, very similar to, to Philadelphia. It's a working class area. So therefore, you always want, as a supporter, and I've had managers that have done this really well, and when I was at Stoke, Tony Pulis did it really, really well. He was always of the mind, he wanted, to, he wanted the team to mirror the area. So mm-hmm. therefore... It was one united force. And he did that unbelievably well. So therefore, when when the supporters turned up at the weekend, it was like, win, lose, or draw, the players are going to be in that dressing room and then they're probably not going to be able to walk because they've given that much in the game. And I, it's very similar to Philadelphia. Philadelphia is, is similar to my hometown as well, Manchester, where it's like, it's working class people, it's honest people, they'll tell you as it is, which I always think is the best way. I, I, if someone comes up to me and says, well, that was rubbish or this was rubbish, I'm like, no problem. You, you, you respect that and you prefer that, but they will always have your back as long as they see you giving everything on the pitch. If they're, if they're looking around and seeing plays that are maybe hiding or not giving everything, they're, going, they're not going to accept that. And I think, that's, I think that's brilliant. So yes, to go back to your question, yes, I've heard about Philadelphia supporters and things like that. But for me, just I feel like I'm at home, whether it be in Manchester or from, from when I was at my days in particular at Stoke. So yeah, it's been a home from home and we've even had a little bit of rain every now and then as well. <laughs> We're winding down with Danny Higginbotham. Really appreciate you taking this much time. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Mm. Um, just real quick question about the Philadelphia Union. 
how close is this union team this season to the one that won the supporters shield last year? Obviously some great young players were sold. Um, but Jim Curtin's, seems to have a pretty good team again. Yeah, he's Jim is one of the nicest guys that I've ever met. Um, from when I first went into the club, he he was just unbelievable. He, he's always got the time. He's honest. When you chat with him, you know, I'll speak to him before every game and we'll have a chat about 15, 20 minutes. It may even go in a different direction, just talking about football in general. He's welcomed me in when I've, when I've wanted to go and watch the training. So I can't speak highly enough of him. And what an unbelievable dress sense he's got as well, in particular with the the sneakers, <laughs> which is what they're called over here in England. We call them trainers. Um, but it, it's it's been sort of, in my opinion, I feel as though the off-season this year has been sort of a watershed moment for Philadelphia mm-hmm. Union because they've always been, don't get me wrong, they got their, their last, last season, they got their first trophy in, in their franchise history, winning the Supporters' Shield. But I think the fact... Of there's been all this talk now for a number of years. You've got Ernst Tanner there as well. You've got Chris Albright. The the everybody's going in the same direction. And there's been there's been this talk for quite a while now about Philadelphia Union producing their own players going into the first team, which they've done. But now all of a sudden you have this off season where you've got Mark McKenzie and you've got Brendan Aronson. They're getting big moves to Europe. Now all of a sudden, the Philadelphia Union, the academy side of things, they've got a wonderful setup there. Everything comes into to fruition. So you're looking at and thinking, wow, look what we're able to do now. So all of a sudden you've got younger players are probably and their families are probably desperate to get in at Philadelphia Union because if you're good enough, you're old enough. It's as simple as that. And I, I, I love that. I love that saying. It's something that, that, that I believe in throughout football, whatever country that you're in. But then on the other side of that, you've got to deal with the fact that with success brings you know other clubs around as well, which are going to be after your players. So we've seen the situation with Mackenzie. We've seen the situation with, with Brendan with Brendan Aronson. There's a talk with Montero now being in transfer talks. And that's one of the things that you have to have to deal with. So from a supporter side of things, it's like, wow, we're, we're putting all these puzzle pieces in. But then there's clubs then coming to, coming to take the players away. And that's where you become, to a certain extent, a victim of your own success. And I see it week after week now when, when they're playing in MLS... Certain, certain teams that they've played against have changed their system because of how well the union have done. There's another reason, victim of your, of your own success. So you have to try and, you have to try and climb above that. Um, now, also, there's, there's two huge games on the horizon against Club America, which they're going to be the biggest games in, in the club's history and something that I'm looking forward to, to seeing as well. And, you know, that will, when it comes along, I'm sure will take precedent because they're in a good place in, in the league at the moment. Um, the way that things work with the playoffs and everything, they'll want to try and get a few more good results because they haven't had the results that they've wanted recently. But all in all, as a club, I think it's it's very much like football is over here. It's growing all the time as well. And sometimes you don't want to be respected that much as a football team because it means that teams are going to do certain things against you. And it means that certain clubs are going to come and try and get your players. But when you've done as well as Philadelphia Union has, when you've got the people behind the scenes and on the pitch that they have as well, it's it's going to go hand in hand. So, you know, that becomes a little bit of a difficult side of things. But the reason that's happening is because they've had success. Yeah, Philadelphia Union, the only remaining MLS team in mm. the CONCACAF Champions League semifinals. That first leg coming up very soon here against Club America from Mexico. Uh, do you think Jim Curtin is capable of coaching in Europe? I'm going to be biased, but yeah, one one 100%. I, I think that he is. You, you don't want him going anywhere from the union, so so you're not going to promote that. But if you're if you're asking me honestly, yeah, I think I think that he is. I think the way that he sees the game. I think when I speak to him, is my management skills the way he he brings the young players through the history that he has at the club as well. Because let's not forget, he didn't just come into the club as the manager of the first team. Mm-hmm. You know, initially, you know, he was working with the younger players, and I think what we see now when when clubs are attracted to certain managers, one of the things that you hear was that, yeah, he wanted to, he wants to bring younger players through, you know, and that's something that I think a lot of clubs stand for now because a lot of clubs are very proud of their histories in terms of bringing younger players through, and I think that that's something that you only know, have to look at the Premier League. When Crystal Palace, Patrick Vieira going to Crystal Palace, you know, Crystal Palace have always had a wealth of, of good young players coming through, and one of the things that was mentioned when Patrick Vieira gets the job is that he wants to promote youth. 
you know he wants to bring younger players into the club as well so when you, when you look at that situation it ticks all the boxes i think that i think that jim is is going to be a manager that's going to go from strength to strength i think he's i think he's got an unbelievable reputation i i honestly feel he's probably not got as as much as much credit as he's as he's been due i can only talk about my time being here you know he's he's one of the top coaches in mls um and I'm speaking really highly of him at the moment, but I don't want him to go anywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but yeah, you, you have to be honest. He's he's a great guy. I think he's great tactically. I think his man management style of things is is absolutely second to none as well. And I've seen him on a day to day basis on the training ground as well. And he's like I say, I can't speak highly enough of him as a, as a coach, as a manager, as a, a and as a human being and an individual. Last question for you: mm. Do you think you'll end up staying in the U.S. for a while? Yeah. One hundred percent. There's, there's no, there's no doubt about it. I think what you have to do when, when you obviously, you know, I, I lived in, I lived in Belgium for a year when I was nineteen. I went on, I went on loan to, to a football club over there, and I was, I only had to think about me then. It was just me, a nineteen-year-old kid. You know, I didn't have the responsibilities of, you know, children or anything like that. So when when you make this move, it's a big move. You know, you're near enough moving over to the other side of the world. Yes, you've got family here, but you you take into you take everything into account. You know, my two youngest children in particular now they're they're settled here, they're in school. So you're thinking about everything else, and yeah, there's I've never once looked at it and thought, right, okay, this is going to be short term. I'm going to be here for two or three years and then go back home to England. No, as far as I'm concerned, this is this is this is long term. 100% and and everything that I've seen so far uh, everything that I've been involved with and, and things like that has not made me question anything whatsoever that it that it wasn't the right decision and 100% was the right decision well we are absolutely thrilled to have you as part of the US soccer media landscape Danny Higginbotham is working at NBC Sports, doing terrific work in the studio for their Premier League coverage. He's also the local TV analyst for the Philadelphia Union. Danny, that was great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. No, absolutely. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Danny Higginbotham as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.